Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Ethiopia's conflict is intensifying, spreading across the country. What tools exist to reverse this slide into civil war? And Eswatini has been in turmoil for months. Why isn't a genuine compromise in the offing? Plus, we discuss the new literary scene in sub-Saharan Africa. How are new platforms and outlets for African writers changing the game? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. The conflict in Ethiopia has expanded beyond Tigray, engulfing other parts of the country. What options exist to end this spiraling civil war? Joining me to discuss Ethiopia and other topics are Abdi Latif Tahir, East African correspondent for the New York Times, Derek Matsengoretsky, a content creator with experience in media, public relations, advertising, and marketing industries, and Makila James, a former U.S. ambassador to Eswatini and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Africa. This is our 12th episode in partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Okay, in June, Ethiopia held its national elections, and the government declared a unilateral ceasefire following its defeat at the regional capital of Mekele by the Tigrayan Defense Forces, also known as the TDF. There is a fragile ceasefire in Tigray in northern Ethiopia. After Ethiopian forces and their allies withdrew from the region, they largely occupied late last year. This, however, did not result in a lull in fighting. In fact, the war intensified. The TDF moved to evict the government and ethnic Amhara militia from western Tigray, and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed called on other regions, Oromo, Sidama, the Southern Nations, Nationalities and Peoples region, to send reinforcement. The government also has started a new recruitment drive for its military. There's been reporting of now fighting in a far region. So, Abdi, it seems like we are entering a new phase. What is your take on the current situation? Do you see an escalation of fighting as I do? And what are the implications? As you know, um, the war in Ethiopia has been grinding on for nine months with many reports of massacres, sexual assault, and ethnic cleansing surfacing even in the early days of the conflict. But what was once a war that was centered in Ethiopia's northernmost region of Tigray has now spread to multiple regions. It threatens to engulf the whole country. And as it keeps growing, it will for sure have implications not just for Ethiopia and its immediate neighbors, but the entire Horn of Africa region Over the past few weeks, we've seen the government of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed um, mobilizing citizens from across the country to join the war against the Tigrayan forces and support federal troops who, along with Eritrean troops and ethnic Amhara allies, were pushed back from Tigray. These recruitment drives have taken place in regional cities, but also in the capital, Addis Ababa. And Max, what I think is a significant turning point for a war that has already claimed the lives of so many people. Tigrayan forces have also entered neighboring Afar and Amhara regions. And this week, we know that they took over Lalibela, an important cultural and religious site. Lalibela is not only a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but its beautiful rock-hewn churches are a sacred place of pilgrimage and prayer for Christians. 
the Tigrayans have rejected calls to leave these neighboring regions until their demands for a ceasefire are met. Those demands include many things. They include like lifting restrictions on humanitarian access, the complete withdrawal of Eritrean troops, the restoration of electricity and telecommunications network. But they also include the commencement of what they call a transitional arrangement, which essentially could translate to a political arrangement that would see Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed ousted from power. So for now, the war grinds on with Tigrayan forces now also looking to retake parts of western Tigray, which Amhara regional forces uh, took over when the war began last November. Those lands are contested, and many Ethiopian refugees I met in Sudan who are from those parts of the country worried that they wouldn't be able to go back home once the war was over. And speaking of Sudan, we also saw this week that dozens of bodies washed up on the Takeza River, which separates Sudan from Ethiopia. The bodies had gunshot wounds, some had their hands tied. And all this goes to show the awful toll this war continues to exact. The humanitarian situation also remains dire. Almost 2 million people in the Tigray region have been displaced. And we shouldn't also forget that intercommunal and inter-ethnic violence continues to spike in many parts of the country with the latest violence uh, involving the Somali and the Afar regions. I think my last thought on this is that last November when this war began, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed promised this would be a swift operation that would be quickly be over. We now know that has not been the case. And this conflict in Africa's second most populous nation It threatens not just the stability of Ethiopia, but it will have enormous consequences for security in neighboring Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea, Kenya, and beyond. Ethiopia is an important nation to this region and to the African continent. And the faster this war de-escalates, the better it will be for everyone. Makila, as we're recording this episode in early August, USAID Administrator Power has arrived in Ethiopia I'd like to get your thoughts on what the U.S. should be doing in addition to Ambassador Power's comments, right? So the U.S. has already issued visa sanctions. Are there other steps that should be taken to ensure humanitarian access and put this country on the right path towards peace? In other words, are there some tools that maybe we have, the U.S. government has, that African governments have, that maybe we haven't used or should be using to address this tragedy? It's really a critical situation in Ethiopia, as you and Abdi have laid out. And I'm really delighted to hear that USAID Administrative Powers has traveled to Ethiopia. We look at what's happening in the various regions, and we know that the most important question is to find the right tool to bring peace. So you've asked me about the U.S. using the existing tools of sanctions. And I'll say that targeted sanctions, sanctions particularly that are focused on visas and economic sanctions, against people who have committed gross violations of human rights and who've been accused of war crimes, it can be a very effective tool. And I'm sure that's going to be a tool that the administration continues to look at. But quite honestly, it is only a tool. It is not an end in itself. The real goal is to figure out what other ways exist to incentivize all sides to support the ceasefire, to move from temporary to a more permanent ceasefire, to then begin to create the conditions that would be right for broader national dialogue. So I start from the perspective that while the sanctions are important 
And it's really valuable work that's being done by people who are, first of all, collecting the testimony and the evidence of what has happened in Tigray in particular and other regions now. It's important to collect, to document, and to be able to build those cases. But that's just one tool. The really most important thing I think right now is for the international community to focus on making the ceasefire accepted on all sides, making it go from temporary to a more permanent ceasefire. That's the first thing to begin to stabilize the situation. The second thing I think that really has to happen is that this issue of humanitarian access, while slightly improving, is still far from what's needed. The World Food Program, I think, is now reporting that after a two-week blockage, they are beginning to be able to move their trucks into some of the more dire regions. But we have now attacks on refugee camps. You've got armed people being identified moving around in refugee camps. So the humanitarian crisis continues to be very grave. We cannot afford to let up on that. We've got to keep pushing on humanitarian access in all regions. And then, of course, the U.S. government always, always has the tools of diplomatic engagement. Talking with key leaders in the region is going to be even more important because as we have been discovering, the unilateral ceasefire is certainly just not adequate enough. And we need to get the Tigrayan forces to accept the ceasefire. And to have that happen, we're going to have to have intense engagement with representatives from the Tigrayan side, from the government, from all sides, frankly, to be able to get the region to keep the pressure up and intense as it needs to be. And then, of course, the last thing is engaging in a way that will lead to political solutions long term. And that has to be about a broader conversation that involves all sectors of the society on what should the future of Ethiopia look like. So to me, those are the priorities. And it's not that sanctions are not important. Sanctions are indeed a useful tool, but it's only one tool. I think it's important to continue the pressure regionally, continue the diplomatic engagement, continue to look at how can the international community support a more lasting and verifiable ceasefire. I think that's exactly right. And I fully agree with the point about sanctions. It is a tactic. It is not an end in and of itself. Many of the sanctions that we put on on various actors are extraordinarily difficult to remove once they're in place. We have to figure out ways for people to get back to the table. So when we levy these sanctions, what is the off-ramp, right? How do you get off them? That's one. And I think that's just a corollary to, to what you said. And I want to just foot stomp the point about our African partners. And there was a, I thought, very important start here when Cyril Ramaphosa was still the head of the African Union. He sent a number of eminent personalities, former President Sirleaf of Liberia, Maflante of South Africa, Chisano, they went out and tried to deal with Abiy. I think more of that kind of engagement would be really useful. I'll note that Vice President Harris did talk to President Chitsukedi, who is the head of the AU, and I suspect they talked about Ethiopia, but more work from the AU and African neighbors is important because this is not just an Ethiopia problem. This is a East African problem. This is a continental problem. This is a global problem. And then at the UN as well. And I've seen really good cooperation between our government and the A3, the African members, but Russia and China have been really blocking a lot of the UN actions. So I think there's a number of different layers and different levels that we have to do at this. But you're exactly right in terms of how do we push forward and how do we keep the pressure on, but also think about these off ramps. This is not the first time that we've talked about Ethiopia. I know we'll talk about it again, but. I'm delighted that we have the opportunity to talk to you, Makila, about Iswatini. 
you are a former ambassador. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. But just for our listeners, let me give some background. Since May, this small country that's a monarchy has been rocked by unrest. Protesters have clashed with police for days, demanding democratic reforms in a kingdom formerly known as Swaziland. Though the government and the opposition give different figures, they both agree that dozens died at the hands of security forces in the ensuing crackdown. There was a death of a Swazi law student and then these labor strikes, and that led to an outburst of protest, riots, and looting. The government then responded with a very heavy hand, including beating and torturing local journalists. For our listeners, I recommend checking out our other podcast, 49. Nicole Willett and I talked to Ebelitle Mabusia, who is a journalist and shared his very personal story about what he suffered at the hands of the police. So you can find the link in the show notes, but I strongly recommend it. The king, Mswatiti III, had been in hiding for most of the disturbances. He finally came out with some concessions, appointed a new prime minister. There had been an acting prime minister since the death of the previous prime minister. He rebuked his government for preventing Swazis from being able to petition their legislators. And he committed to provide some financial assistance to those affected by the unrest, but that's clearly not enough. Michaela, as a former ambassador, can you help us understand what do the protesters want? Why is the king reluctant to accede to some of these demands? And, and one of them, which I note, is just the unbanning of political parties, which has been in effect since really 1973. Why is that such a non-starter? Jared, I'm really glad that you're focusing on a small country like Eswatini because I really feel that it doesn't really get the attention that it warrants. It is a small landlocked country surrounded by South Africa and Mozambique. But first, let me offer my condolences to the people of Swaziland. In the last couple of months, they have really endured some very ugly situations. About 100 people have been killed by security forces. Numerous hundreds of people have been arrested. Members of parliament are currently detained, at least two members. Journalists have been attacked. The internet was shut. It's really been a dire situation. And it's all coming out of the fact that the people of Eswatini have been asking for the most basic and fundamental rights. The right to have true representative government that's accountable to them. The right to be able to pick the prime minister who is, in effect, the operational hand of government day to day. And they don't have those basic rights. And as you said, the unbanning of political parties. Political parties have long been in sort of a gray area since the 70s. In the Constitution, it's rather unclear whether parties can actually operate. And I can tell you that when I was there, the government would always say to me, well, political parties can exist. And on paper, they may be able to exist, but parties cannot register. Politicians cannot campaign on a party platform. They have to be elected based on, quote, individual merit under a traditional system called Tenkundla. It's a system that doesn't really accept and acknowledge the benefit of political formations and political parties operating as a block. And so it's a situation that the people of Eswatini have long had to endure. And the most recent examples of police brutality have brought this to the fore. The death of a young law student, Tabani Nkomanye, in the police custody was yet again the spark for young people in particular coming out to say, we want responsible, accountable, meaningful government. And they just haven't been able to have that. And so you ask about what are their demands? 
The Swazi people can speak for themselves, so I'm only going to quote them. I don't need to tell you what I think should happen or what the U.S. government thinks should happen. The people of Eswatini have expressed themselves very clearly, one, by delivering petitions directly to their local leadership, asking for the right to select their own prime minister. That's been one of the key demands, and that's been ignored. King Mswati has always picked the prime minister, and the prime minister has always been somebody from the Lamini clan. That already excludes lots of talent, lots of people in the country who would want to provide that kind of service. It doesn't happen if you're not a Lamini. So there's not been an opportunity for people to pick their own prime minister since their independent uh, and, and democratic dispensation has started. And so they've come together recently under something called the Multi-Stakeholder Forum. And this Multi-Stakeholder Forum, as I understand it, is people from civil society, from religious groups, political leadership. And they've put out five particular demands that they think should be respected by the king and his government. The first is they want an all-inclusive mediated political dialogue. They want to be able to talk about the future. There really isn't a current vehicle to do that. The current parliament has a lot of people in it who are handpicked by King Mswati himself. That's by law. The king picks a large number of the members of the Senate and the lower house. And so they don't really have representative leadership there to talk about their future. As I said, the King also picks the prime minister. And most recently, the king called the people together to discuss all of the grievances under something called the sabaya, a traditional system of governance that happens where people come to the king's cattle briar and they have representations there. But that's not really an accountable system of government. One, it doesn't allow for all people to be able to be present. It doesn't allow for some of the more strong voices of dissent to be heard there. And so they want a mediated political dialogue. And that's something that I think the international community should be pressing for in support of the multi-stakeholder forum. They also want the unbanning of political parties. And that's really important because we know that there are political parties that do exist, but they just don't have legal authority and they can't fundraise, they can't campaign, they can't act as a block. They also want to look at something called a transitional executive authority. They want to think about how to transition from the monarchy to something else. A fourth demand is a democratic constitution. The current constitution indeed has a lot of inconsistencies, it has a lot of flaws, and it doesn't quite provide the guaranteed fundamental rights that the people of Eswatini are entitled to and feel that they should be having. And then the last thing is they want the acceptance of a broad, multi-party, democratic dispensation to be the order of the day. The king has long argued that multi-partyism doesn't work in a small country like Eswatini. Well, I think the opposite has really been proven to be true. The lack of a multi-party system has been the real source of non-accountability and fundamentally poor service delivery. So the people of Eswatini are looking for that. I think I might just say a word or two about what is the role of SADC, because I've mentioned SADC a few times. SADC is the sub-regional body there, and SADC has actually looked at Swaziland over many years, but usually from afar. They were invited to come in to take a look at things most recently, and the first trip was a very small, they only stayed in the country one day, and that was seen as woefully inadequate to understand the complexity and the breadth of the problem. SADC did come back for a second time, and even when they came back on their second visit, they only met with a very small and what seemed to be a rather exclusive list of people. They made a third trip, 
And on their third trip, they did include more political leadership, more civil society. And so we all await now SADC's report. SADC does have the responsibility to support this voice of the people seeking only what is something that is present in every other country in Southern Africa, the right for real representative government, respect for human rights, and holding SADC to that is something that I think the international community should press for because it's only right and fair that the people of Eswatini should have those same fundamental basic rights. And then I guess the last thing I might say is, what more can the U.S. do? The U.S. has issued a number of statements from our embassy. The statements have called for political dialogue, space for political reform, an end to the violence. But we've got to go beyond statements, of course. And I think this is a case where we will have to look at what are the carrots, but also what are the sticks. And the sticks, again, have to be very targeted, very specific, because it's a poor country. We don't need to do things to exacerbate people's state of poverty, but we do need to send a message to those people who are behind this violence that it won't be tolerated by the international community. So let me just stop there and say that I love Swaziland. It is a country with very talented, very resilient people. It is a lush country. It has the potential to be a greater economic force than it is, but it needs leadership that can deliver basic services to people, that can protect people's rights, and that can deal with the grave health crisis going on right now. COVID is ravaging Eswatini. They don't have access to vaccines in large numbers. And so all of that combined, the lack of political legitimacy and leadership, economic hopelessness, and COVID has really brought things to a head. It's time for the international community and the region to step up and support the legitimate and rightful demands of the people of Eswatini. That's extraordinarily helpful. You're definitely the right person to help unpack these issues. And I wanted to just make a point here because, again, as we're recording, I guess it's a theme for today's episode, Victoria Newland, who is the number three in the State Department, the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, she is actually on her way to East Watini too. So something for our audience to watch, you know, if we're able to sort of move the ball forward. Let's move to our final topic, Africa's new literary scene. Both Abdi and Derek have recently published fascinating articles on new platforms and outlets for African writers. Abdi, you wrote in July in the New York Times about several new online literary magazines. Can you tell us a little bit about why they're significant? What does it tell us about the state of literature in Africa? And are these magazines introducing new authors and perspectives and stories? These literary magazines and journals are publishing some of the most audacious, creative, bold stories, whether fiction or nonfiction, that are coming from the African continent. I think the situation in the past had been that you are only successful as a writer, that your voice and your story and your ideas mattered more if you were noticed or published by publications in the West. And so with these African founders who are often young and very tech savvy and immensely talented, they're coming out to say that they will not way to be granted access and that they would write about topics and ideas that might not have gotten as much prominence in Western publications. And so all of a sudden you're seeing new magazines popping up in Kenya, in Namibia, in South Africa, in Nigeria, but also in the African diaspora. 
And what is unique about them is how they leverage social media to call for submissions, to listen and get close to divergent conversations, to market themselves, to fundraise, and also just to attract uh, attention to their products. I think they're also unique in the kind of work that they publish. We've seen photo essays and poetry performances that explore questions about identity, about culture, about sexuality, about morality. And when I read some of these pieces and engaged with these young authors and founders, I came away feeling energized about the refreshing and freeing ways in which these young writers are questioning their world without a need for affirmation or prior acceptance by others. My final thought on this is the fact that the coronavirus pandemic, which has wrecked havoc and decimated economies, the fact that that has not deterred them and only pushed them to innovate and establish creative outlets during this very dangerous moment, very sad moment, is really a hopeful sign. These young women and men, uh, I think, are building something entirely new, um, which I think will be monumental to strengthening African literature. Derek, you went to the next step in your African Arguments piece entitled, What This Generation Wants, African Authors Publishing Direct to the Web. Authors are using WhatsApp and Facebook to share their stories. Can you tell us about what you're seeing in this space? Is this the future of publishing? Or, as you say in your piece, is it just a fad? Of late, I've witnessed that the aspiring writers are willing to have their works Capnotis using any available platforms. So now, with the lack of publishing houses, they have not stopped writing their works. In fact, they are pushing their art to get notice with limited resources. In Africa, if a novel sells an average of 1,000 copies, it is considered a bestseller. Though there are no figures or studies done on the number of books that are written by authors using WhatsApp or Facebook platforms, it is surely a trend that is gaining popularity in Africa, especially with women sharing these books on various social media platforms. In future, if the prices of literature remain too steep as they are currently, this trend could as well become the future of publishing in Africa, and some of the authors will play a significant role. If someone can develop an application to benefit these authors, who knows, this trend could impact the world of literature in a mighty way. Makila, how should the U.S. engage with these new platforms and outlets? In your opinion, is there a benefit to the U.S. to do that? And if yes, what is the ways that we should support these platforms? We could talk about doing it virtually or non-virtually, but we want to elevate it. Do we want to directly support them? I mean, what would be your recommendations as a former ambassador and a senior diplomat? Thank you so much, Judd. And I'm really glad that we're ending on this topic because it reminds all of us of the dynamism and the creativity that is everywhere evident on the continent. Even as we have to deal with crises in so many countries, it's important to remember that peace and development are possible and that there are people working towards that through various mediums on the continent. I was really excited to read the articles by our colleagues because it talks to the explosion of online and digital technology, which has really been accelerating during COVID-19. One of the only benefits that I can see from COVID-19 is that it's forced people to turn to more online platforms 
for sharing of information, for being creative. And we've really seen an explosion of that across Africa, not only in the online publishing world, but also in the areas of movies and streaming and film production. It's been just a proliferation. And that's really part of what I see as Africa's soft power. Africa is putting out something to the world that tells a new story, a different story, their own story about Africa. So I am loving these new online platforms. And, you know, of course, as a U.S. diplomat, we've always been heavily engaged in our own soft power in Africa. And we've had a long term advantage because our culture has been very attractive to African young people. And so it's really fantastic to see African soft power, U.S. soft power finding a way to come together. In particular, the way we come together is through the work that we can do in our embassies, our public diplomacy sections in particular, have always developed and helped to work on traditional mediums like journalism, university exchanges, cultural exchanges. And that's something that we now have an opportunity to take to another level with digital technology. So I'm really excited about that. The Biden administration has made quite a lot of statements already about its desire to increase their African youth engagement. Well, the digital media allows us to do that. It will be a great way for the administration to plug more into what young Africans are thinking and what young Africans are trying to do. I would say there are a couple of particular things that we can do. First, I think our public diplomacy sections need to be resourced to support more training for these online platforms. There's a lot of interest, a lot of talent on the continent, but there may not be as many skills and people may be in need of more technology. So resourcing our public diplomacy sections to engage more is something that I look forward to. The other thing that's really going to be important, though, as these online platforms take off is intellectual property protection. Creatives stand to lose a lot or gain a lot if there are intellectual protections in place. And so the U.S. government can help setting that regulatory environment, setting in place rules of the road, if you will, so that creative artists can indeed see their work develop and be rewarded for it. I know that the U.S. mission at the African Union has already started to look at this and has actually hosted a couple of programs looking at intellectual property rights and making sure that creatives know how to protect their own works. So that's, that would be a second area, helping with the rules of the road as well as helping provide training. So I think there's some great tools there. The last set of tools I might identify is the administration can work really hard to bring more American private sector into this area of online content development and distribution in Africa. It's been exciting to see that Netflix and Google are already operating in several key African markets, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, and doing things to incentivize more American private sector investment in these countries would be a really smart thing to do. And I think the administration is already thinking about this. They've got their tool of Prosper Africa, which is about putting together deals, facilitating easy deal making between American private sector companies and African partners. And they also have a new tool, the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Again, that will provide financing guarantees to incentivize American private sector investment in Africa, um, digital technology. So I'm thinking that those are a lot of tools that are already out there. Fundamentally, the creative economy in Africa 
offers the promise of good jobs for young people. It offers the opportunity to promote freedom of speech and more human rights and democracy information. And so I think fundamentally it's in the U.S. interest and the interest of Africa and the African people for more digital technology to be made available and to be a tool that we invest heavily in. So for me, it's a win-win. I think absolutely it will help promote U.S. foreign policy to see more digital platforms growing in Africa. Couldn't be more excited about it. I really like those recommendations. And I'm going to throw a couple on the table too before we wrap up. And they build on some of your points about soft power, but fiction is how we understand how the world works. And in a roundabout way, we even understand foreign policy, I think, more effectively by reading fiction and understanding African points of view. So in some respects, I want to just think about what's on these platforms as much as the platforms and just the explosion of incredible science fiction uh, on the continent right now and what we can learn about how Africans see themselves and see the world through their writing is so important. And I think that will be the cornerstone of good policy is, again, understanding each other. And so are there initiatives that we can do in conjunction with these platforms or with African writers that can push the ball forwards? I don't know how many embassies do public reading sponsored by the embassies. As you said, Michaela, how do we get American authors and African authors to do exchanges? How do we do past the mic initiatives using our social media platforms and some of the platforms that Abdi and Derek have talked about? Maybe there's even like a cool way where we could have budding writers within the diplomatic service jointly write with African writers. I mean, I just want our diplomats to think about not only how do we support and elevate these platforms, but how do we actually engage with it and do that in a very transparent and open way? Because I think that's how we bridge the gap sometimes between us and other countries. And we have so much shared history together This is a pretty easy win as long as we're creative about it. I don't want to end today, but we're going to have to end today. Let me thank my guests. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.